So if you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're in this, this series called Heroes. And so we finished this series up, and we've been looking at David's life, because David is like a hero to mine. In fact, is the story that we're going to look at tonight, today, uh, is probably, out of all of David's life, it's one of, it's one of my most favorite stories. It's the story of Mephibosheth. And so I've done, I've done so good in all the services, and, and I just mispronounced it, but it's Mephibosheth. Uh, is crippled. And so we're going to talk about this issue. We're going to look at this issue. What is compassion? I mean, seriously, what, what, what is a definition of compassion? How do we know we have compassion? How do we know when we can see compassion in someone's life? I mean, is, 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 is compassion just self-pity uh, or pity that you have for someone else? Is, is compassion emotion, a feeling? Because you'll hear people talk, say, well, you know what? I'm a compassionate person because I cry at like Lifetime movies or I cry at commercials or, or I cry real easy. I'm an, an emotional person. So is that what compassion is? Is compassion just all emotion? Or is compassion deeper than that? Is there something about compassion that is much deeper than, than what we even think? The fact is, we get our English word compassion from a Latin word that is a compound Latin word, which means this, to sympathize and to bear. In other words, it's just not something you think. It's just not something you feel. It's just not something that, that you say. That compassion, when you start looking at the definitions, compassion is much deeper than that. And it's to sympathize with someone, but it's, it's love and action. It's this issue to where it moves you to action, it moves you to do something, it moves you to step into someone's life. And so a defining moment in David's life, we're going to look at it through the life of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was about five years old when he left the palace. He's an adult now. We don't know how old he is in 2 Samuel chapter 9, but we know he's an adult. We know that he has some children, but we're not sure how old he was. But Mephibosheth is one of these guys that, that David shows kindness to or compassion to when he sees the need that's in his life. And so we live in a world that doesn't show a lot of compassion, right? I mean, we live in a world that's just an angry, hurtful world that, that a lot of the compassion that people have is just for themselves, that all they care about is that their needs are met and their situations are met. But when you look at this and when you look at the teachings of Jesus, you find that the church and believers, and one of our goals, one of our, 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 our missions is this, is that we live out compassion for the rest of the world, that there's a stark contrast of how we treat one another versus how the world treats people. That's why Jesus said that, says, you know what, they're going to know that you're my disciples. They're going to know that you're followers of mine. Not by the denominational tag that you add to your name, not by the church that you go to, not whether you go on Saturday nights or Sunday, not any of that. They're going to know that you're my disciples by the way in which you love one another. The way in which you display and show compassion to each other. The way that you learn to care for one another. The way that you learn to serve one another. And so let me just ask you this question as we kind of flesh this out. When you see someone in need, how do you respond? When you see a need in a family, when you see a need in a relationship, when you see a need in a school, when you see a need in a community, oh, and when you see a need in a church, how do you respond? Because the Bible says that if you have possessions and you see someone in need and you don't help them, you don't help meet that need, then how can you say the love of the Father abides in you? See, when you see those needs and when you see those opportunities, it will either cause you to move away from the situation or to step into the situation. See, a person of compassion, a person that has compassion is always stepping into those situations. 
So David has this opportunity because of his treatment and how he, he responds to Mephibosheth to show compassion and display to us what compassion really looks like. Now listen, we're going to walk verse by verse through 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'm just going to give you three principles so that we can flesh this out, so that we can understand what it means to have compassion and what it looks like. What is the Bible? How does? Because that's what we really want to know, right? How does the Bible define out compassion? And what does it look like? The first thing is this. The, the first principle is this, is compassion drives us to to keep our commitments. See, compassion drives you to do something. Compassion is not something you think. It's not something you feel. It's not something you say. But compassion, when you know a person has compassion, you can tell by the way they act or the way that they step into a situation. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, as we just pick up the story. And so David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him. Now, the word compassion and kindness was interchangeable uh, when they trans, uh, translated it out from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so he says, that I may show him compassion for Jonathan's sake. Now, listen, here's what David's doing. So we understand the culture. We understand the history. We understand what is behind 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David is trying to keep a promise that he made to his good friend, Jonathan. See, Jonathan and David at some point knew that one day David would become the king. Now, just so you know, and we're all together, because this may be your, your first weekend with us as we walk through this David series together, Jonathan's dad was Saul. Saul was king. He was King Saul. Jonathan and David became friends, and they were close friends. In fact, is they were best friends. And they made commitments together, and they had a deep relationship together. And so what would happen in their culture, what would happen in their context, when, when a new king came into power, that new king generally, usually, would kill the family of the previous king. He'd kill, if the king was still alive, for sure, they'd kill the king. And then they would kill everybody in his family because he was, he was afraid that he was going to be threatened. He was afraid that there would be a rebellion or a revolution. Or, and he didn't want to have to deal with that. So Jonathan knew this, and Jonathan knew that one day David was going to become king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan and David are walking together in a field, and Jonathan turns to David and said, David, we all know that one day you're going to be king. So can I ask you to make a, a promise? Can I ask you to make a pledge? Can you take a vow with me? When you become king, would you spare our family? Would you do that for us? We're, we're not going to rebel. We're not, we're not going to overthrow you. Would, would you spare our family? And David turns to Jonathan and says, Jonathan, I promise to you, I'll make a vow with you. I'll enter, I'll, I'll enter into a covenant with you. I'll make a vow to you. When I become king, I will, I will spare your family. I won't take your family. Again, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, they, almost an identical discussion. Jonathan was getting concerned and Jonathan was getting worried because it was getting closer and closer to the time that David would become king. And so he looks at Jonathan, so Jonathan looks at David again and says, David, remember that promise that, that you made to me? Would you just promise again? Would you just promise to me that you're going to keep that vow? That you're gonna, would you make that promise? And so David again looked at him and said, Jonathan, let me tell you this. When I become king, I promise, I commit, I make a, a vow to you that I'll spare your family. Let me just tell you this. You, you know the problem with a promise? You know what makes a promise so difficult to keep? Because the conditions under which a promise is made is different than the conditions under which a promise is kept. 
A lot of times we make promises, a lot of times we make vows, a lot of times we make commitments when the circumstances are ideal, are best. But we got to keep that promise, we got to keep that commitment when the circumstances may change, when the circumstances may do. See, that's what makes a promise so difficult. That's what makes a commitment so difficult to keep. Is that situations change, circumstances change. Things can become difficult in how you and I respond to that. See, a person of compassion understands. A person of compassion understands. That's why it drives us to keep our promises. That's why it drives us to keep our commitments. Because a person of compassion understands. When I break a promise to you, when I break a promise to my family, when I break a promise to people around me, when I break a promise to God, people are hurt. People are devastated. I mean, sometimes it's so easy to sit in, inside a, a used car salesman or car salesman and dealership and say, I commit to make the next 24, 48, 72, you know, however many years for life. I'll make 72 easy payments. No such thing as easy payments, right? But you know, life can change. Circumstances can change. And the easiest place may be to make that commitment there, but when circumstances change when a student says mom and dad I'll, I'll make it in by curfew the circumstance under which the promise is made is different than the circumstance in which the student has to keep that commitment has to keep their word when you start a new job sometimes the easiest time is to make a great commitment to that new company that new boss that new organization and say I'll give eight hours of work for eight hours of pay and I'm excited to have this job and I'll support you and all this other stuff that's the easiest place to make a commitment, right? That's the easiest place to make a promise because circumstances change. Whether it's a difficult boss, whether it's a difficult economic situation, whether it's a downturn in the economy, then it becomes more difficult. See, the problem with the promise is this. The circumstances in which a promise is made is different than the circumstances in which a promise is kept. When we enter into marriage, we make a promise, better or worse, Rich or poor, good times, bad times. It's easier to make that commitment in a church with a pastor and friends than it is to keep that commitment. When circumstances change, situations change, and things change. When we sit in a worship service, when we feel the presence of God and the encouragement of people that are praying for us, it encourages us, and we make decisions to, to press in harder to God and to follow God harder. Listen, that's the easiest place. You know when it becomes hard? Well, you know when it becomes hard. On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. That's why Psalms 15.4, in fact, is it's all through the scriptures and Proverbs and everywhere else talks about this and he says in who eyes in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who who honors those who fear the lord who swears listen to his to his own hurt you know why it's hard to keep a commitment sometimes you know why it's hard to keep because when situations change it can be inconvenient it can be painful that's why the writer of Proverbs, that's why this Psalms talks about this issue that, that, that the righteous is the man and righteous is the woman. They will keep a promise, keep a, pro, keep a commitment, even to their own hurt, and does not 
change. Here's, here's the crazy deal about David. David kept his promise even when the circumstances changed. Everything totally changed. And here's the crazy thing about David. He didn't have to. The man that he made the promise to, dead. Jonathan and Saul and King Saul were killed on the same day. They were killed on the same day in battle. So the man that he made the commitment to, the man that he made the promise to, is now dead. Fact is, when you read the pages of Scripture and you read the story for yourself, and you can read, read it for yourself uh, this afternoon, and you will find there is no one even bringing this promise up. Fact is, there's no indication in Scripture that anybody ever knew that David made this commitment, and David made this commitment to Jonathan. I mean, nobody's asking him about it. Nobody's bringing it up. Nobody's talking about it. But see, when, when you have compassion, you don't care who knows. Because you know it's a pledge you've made. You know it's a commitment you've made. You know it's a promise that you have made. And so you see David trying to fulfill that commitment. In other words, that, that we understand how important our word is. And so if you tell someone you'll call them back, then just call them back. If you tell someone, let's do lunch, then do lunch. If you tell someone, I'll show up on time, then just show up on time. If you tell someone, I'll pray for you, then pray for them. Billy Graham is, is, is famous of a lot of things, and he's famous of, of some of his writings and some of the things that he talked about, about this issue in church and this issue in Christian circles, that he says the greatest lie, the most often lie that is told in church is this issue of, I'll pray for you. Because so many people will in passing say, hey, I'll pray for you. Hey, I'll pray for you. And guess what? We're human, right? We just forget. I forget, and you can forget. And that's why Billy Graham, early on in his ministry, said, my word is, my, is the foundation of my ministry. My word is the platform of my ministry. And so Billy Graham would start, said, you know what? I never tell anyone I'll pray for them. I just pray for them right then. And when someone has a need and someone has a situation in, in, in their life, and they tell me about it, instead of saying, I'll pray for you, I just put my arm around them and I just pray for them wherever we are. Fact is, unbelievable thing, but when you read Billy Graham's autobiography, he writes, he had a personal assistant, a guy that followed him, was in every meeting that he went into, listened to every conversation, every discussion that he, that he had, and wrote down on a piece of paper every commitment that Billy Graham made. And it was his job to follow up with Billy Graham and make sure he fulfilled them. Because Billy Graham was so worried that he wouldn't keep a promise and a commitment that he made. So the story goes on and says, and says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and David the king said, Are you Ziba? And he says, I am, and I'm your servant. And so here's what David said. Is there not still someone else of the house of Saul that I may show compassion of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but, David, you just need to know, he's crippled. He's crippled in his feet. You see, when Mephibosheth was, was five years old, um, his, his, his grandfather, King Saul, his dad, Jonathan, were killed on the same day. And so they knew, Mephibosheth's uh, nursemaid knew, that typically what has happened when a king overthrows another one, when a king comes into power, he kills the whole family. They were unaware of the promise that David had made to Jonathan. And so the nursemaid took Mephibosheth, picked him up, and they began fleeing the palace. And they were running out of the palace, and they, they hit a set of stairs. They're flying down a set of stairs. They trip and fall. Mephibosheth tumbles down the stairs, breaks both of his ankles, and breaks both of his feet. 
And so they fled to a place called Lodabar, which Lodabar means this. It's just a desolate, lonely place, just not a good place, but they're fleeing for their life because they think they're going to be killed. And so as a result of that, in Lodabar, there were no physicians, there were no doctors, there was nobody that could care for him, so there was nobody that could set the, reset the bones in his ankles, there was nobody that could reset the bones in his feet. And so as a result of that, Mephibosheth was, par- was, was crippled from the age of five through adulthood. So here's the interesting thing about a man of compassion. Here's the interesting thing about David. David didn't ask, hey, can I ask you how did it happen? I mean, was it his fault? Was it because he did something stupid? Because you know what? If he got himself into that place, he can get himself out of that place. I mean, I mean it was, was it a dumb decision that he made? Because you know what? If it is his fault, it's because of his dumb decision, then guess what? I'm not going to show him compassion. He can just stay there. He didn't ask him, well, let me ask you. When you talk about crippled, how disabled is he? I mean, we bring him into the house. Is it going to be inconvenient? Is it going to be difficult? Can I ask you this? Is he disfigured? I mean, how seriously is this? How much help is he going to need? I mean, how much is this going to inconvenience me? You see, David was a type of man that had great compassion. He saw a need, and he stepped in to meet it. He didn't worry about how much it would, it would, it would, it, it would inconvenience him. He simply looked at him and said, you know what? Well, well, just where is he? See, David wasn't worried about the inconvenience. David was worried about keeping his word. David was worried about keeping his commitments. David was worried that he was a man of his word and a man of his promise because the platform for any ministry, the platform for any life, listen, Proverbs says this, the most desired thing is what? Is a good name. Your reputation precedes you. Your reputation goes ahead of you. In verse 4, so now, now the king said to him, and so, so Ziba and him are having this conversation. He simply says, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amel, at, at Lodabar. And so we've already discussed that. Lodabar is not a good place. It's a desolate place. Mephibosheth has been there since he's five years old. He's hiding. He thinks they're going to kill him, and he's worried. And we don't know how old he is, but he has some children, so he knows he's an adult. In verse 5, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amel, at Lodabar. Now, now, don't put yourself over the story. I've told you, the Old Testament, in fact, is and the New Testament, the most powerful way to read Scripture is to place yourself in the story. And you can place yourself in the story in David's life, and how would you respond? You made that promise, and the, promise, the person that you made a promise to is dead. Nobody's asking, would you fulfill it? Does that mean anything to you? Or you can put yourself in the place of Mephibosheth. How, how would you respond if you were Mephibosheth and, and you had fleed uh, the palace thinking that the king was going to kill you and you were crippled since then and you're living in a desolate, lonely place and one day you get a knock on the door and you stumble to the door, you answer the door and there is one of the king's guards and says, the king wants to see you. Wouldn't that give you some fear? Uh, he, he's going to kill me because that's what new kings do. It's probably taking him this long to to locate me. It's probably taking him this long to hunt me down. Can you imagine that the fear that he would have? And so verse 6, and so so he gets there. He doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't know why he's there. In fact, the palace guard doesn't even know why he he, he brought him. And so Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered. He answered correctly. Behold, I'm your servant. So Mephibosheth is, is nervous, and he's probably terrified, and he, 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 doesn't, know, he doesn't know why he's been summoned to the, the, the palace, but, but he knows this. He knows that more than two times, 
His grandfather, King Saul, tried to kill David. Probably doesn't think this is going to end well. And so David just looks at him and another identifier, attribute that you're a person of com compassion, you put people at ease around you. Even people that are less fortunate, even people that come out of a desolate place, even people that are handicapped or whatever. See, a person of compassion is not arrogant. A person of compassion understands needs and is willing just to put every... He didn't want Mephibosheth to be nervous or have fear. And that's why he looked at him and said, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. Can you imagine that? For, for here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you compassion or kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. In other words, this was a promise that I made to Jonathan. And I'm going to fulfill it. It doesn't matter to me that circumstances have changed. It doesn't matter to me that situations have changed. It doesn't matter to me that there is not one person on this earth that's even going to ask me about this. Because I know. And not only that, Mephibosheth, I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father. Talk about grace. Grace is giving someone who doesn't earn it, doesn't deserve it, and can't repay it. You know what Jesus said when Jesus says, love is this. Love is not that you love someone because they have the ability to love you back. He says, you know what true love is? You know what biblical love is? When you love someone that cannot repay you. When you love someone that is less fortunate than you. And then he says, not only that, I'm going to give you all this. I'm going to restore you to everything King Saul had. And then Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at the king's table. See, the king's table was only reserved for the highest ranking officials and immediate family members. And all of a sudden he tells him, I'm going to let you eat at the table. Can you imagine what it'd be like for Mephibosheth? to come in to the who's who of the palace guards and the who's who of the family. And it's clunk, clunk, clunk. While he's stumbling to make his way up to the table. And he gets to the table and he gets in a chair and, and then he pulls himself up to the table and here's the crazy deal. And the tablecloth covers his crippled ankles his crippled feet, and he looks like everybody else at the table. That is grace. For the scripture says when we're in Christ, one day we will pull up to the king's table. And his grace will cover our sins. And no one will ever see them. So verse 8, he goes on and he says, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant? So this is this is 
Mephibosheth talking back to David. And so now all of a sudden we're going to get an indication of what Mephibosheth thinks of himself. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That term dead dog in the Hebrew was the most uh, derogatory term. It was, it was just a, it was a slur. It was a, it's just, it was a horrible term. It meant scum of the earth. I'm just a piece of trash. I have no worth. So now we know that Mephibosheth is not only in a difficult place, a desolate place, but Mephibosheth has no real self-image. And he's like, who would even, listen, who would even care about someone like, who would even care about someone like me, the scum of the earth? Who would even care about someone like me, just, just a piece of trash? See, compassion is when we set everybody at ease around us to where Mephibosheth is like, I can't even believe you'd be kind to me. Verse 9, then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all of his household, I have given to your master's grandson. So he's making it public. This is a commitment. See, I'm telling you, compassion drives us to keep our commitments. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may, may have bread to eat. But, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So David is good to him. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's tables, listen, like one of the king's sons. Can you imagine? He didn't have to try to earn his way into the family. He didn't have to justify. It was just by grace. The second thing is this. The second way that we know that compassion, and we're living it out, and compassion is in other people, is this. Compassion drives us to be aware of the needs of others and then to act. In other words, it, it, it's not just something we say. It's not just something we think. It's not something that we just pray. It's not, not something... Is none of that. Listen, I'm telling you. You want to know what you're compassionate about? What needs are you meeting right now? Now listen, you may only have compassion for yourself. You may only care about your needs and your happiness and your peace and yourself and all of that. Other. But listen, I'm telling you. Someone of compassion sees a need in someone else's life, sees a need around them, and then is willing to meet. Listen, let me tell you something. It wasn't compassionate that David made a commitment, that David made a promise, a vow to Jonathan. That's not compassion. Compassion is not something that you say. That is not compassion. You know what compassion is in David's life? It was not in making the promise. It was not in making the vow. It is when he actually did it. It is when he actually stepped in and fulfilled that promise and fulfilled that commitment. And he walked in and he met a need. That's why James in, in, in the New Testament writes this in, in James chapter 2 verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And he's asking, the, how is that helpful? That is not even compassion. fact is, that's making it worse. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is like dead. So listen, compassion from the Old Testament to the New Testament is not something you say. It's not some emotion. It's not something that you feel. It's not something you think. It's, it's love in action. It's stepping in. It's meeting a need. I mean, I, I love the Peanuts uh, uh, cartoons uh, with Charlie Brown in, in the group. In fact, is 
Um, I have a book of all, of all of Charles Schultz's cartoons that he's ever done. And Charles Schultz, in case you don't know this, was a believer. He's a dedicated believer. He's a committed Christ follower. And so one of my favorite cartoons is when, uh, Char when, when uh, Charlie Brown and Linus are inside. It's a cold, snowy day, much like today. They're looking outside, and Snoopy is at the doghouse. He's shivering. He's cold. And he has an empty bowl of water, and he has an empty food uh, bowl. And so, they, so Linus looks at at, uh, at Charlie Brown and says, we ought to do something about this. And so they walk out and they walk right past Snoopy in his doghouse, look at him and say, be of good cheer. <laughs> and they keep walking. In Charles Schultz's biography, he says that it was James chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 was the basis for that cartoon. Let's say this, let's say after church, I, I walk out and I'm making my way to my car. And I see you at your car, and you're kind of at the front door of your car, and, uh, or the, not front door, that'd be your house, but the driver's side door, and you have slammed eight of your fingers. That's two hands, okay? And you have slammed all eight of your fingers in the car door. The car door's closed. They're stuck there. You're, you're screaming in pain. It's bloody. And I walk by there, and I just say, bummer. <laughs> I'll pray for you. And I keep, it, d d is that helpful? No, that's like, that's like hurtful. See, compassion is this. Compassion takes action. Compassion is willing to make a meal. Compassion is willing to, to, to spend time with someone and build a relationship. Compassion is willing to see the needs in a local church and be willing to meet those. Not to be a spectator, not to be a stranger, but to be a person that is invested in a local church to where you see needs and you're willing to met, meet them. See, compassion not only expresses concerns, but it steps into a life. Compassion is willing to give time and it's willing to give money and it's willing to give resources to meet a need. See, compassion is more than just something you think or feel. Compassion is reacting to it. See, compassion does more than just see the opportunities. It seeks them out. See, David was this kind of guy. He was seeking out an opportunity. He was seeing an opportunity when nobody else saw it. See, David was this type of guy that when he saw a need that others did not see that he was willing to meet that need. That's why 2 Peter chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 5 says this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, stop right there, let me tell you this. If you are not growing in compassion right now, you are not growing in Christ. If your compassion isn't growing, whether it's your giving, whether it's your time, whether it's investing in people, whether your compassion is all about you and all about your comfort and all about your stuff and all about your happiness, then I'm just telling you, you are not maturing in Christ. Sometimes what we do with maturing in Christ, we equate it to like head knowledge and knowing more verses and all this other stuff. Listen, it is, how, it is love in action. And he goes on and he even says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective and unfruitful. In other words, if you're not a person of compassion, if you don't meet a need and you don't step into a need, you can live an unfruitful life. You can live an unproductive life. In other words, you can waste your life. That one day, what Scripture says, one day we're going to be held accountable for the compassion that we saw, the needs that we saw, and we didn't like make life all about ourselves. Have you ever thought about this? What if church is not about you? What if it's not about you? 
See, we make church, and you know what we do? When we make church about us, we make it an idol. What if it's not about you? What if it's about you stepping in and meeting needs and ministering to people and partnering with people and encouraging them and praying for them and supporting them? So he goes on, verse 9, Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given to, to your master's grandson. When you just talk about grace, the third and the last principle of compassion is this. Compassion drives us. And notice this action word just drives us. It just drives us to give of our money and give of our time. To where, to where we understand, and you know, you got different people in churches, and some people say, well, you know what, I'll just give them my time, but I'm not going to give them my money. And there's another group of people who say, well, you know what, I'll write a check, but I'm not going to, uh, and it's easy for me to give money, but I'm not going to give of my, uh, of my time and all of that other stuff. And guess what the Scripture says? A person of compassion is willing to give both. A person of Scripture understands, a person of compassion understands that church may not be about them. But it may be about letting a community be able to see what it means love in action and how we love one another because the scripture says that's how the world, that's how the community is going to know that we are his, the way that we love one another. And this issue of tithing is all through the Bible. And there's a, there's a group of people, especially contemporary Christians or New Testament Christians, that will push back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. That issue of tithing, that's Old Testament, that's under the law. Seriously? Seriously? So was murder, so was adultery, so was lying, so was stealing. Are you going to say because you're a New Testament Christian, you're exempt from the godly principles that are laid out in Scripture? From the Old Testament to the New Testament? 400 years before the law, Jacob tithed. 450 years before the law, Abraham tithed. It's just something, this goes all the way back to the garden. That's why in Malachi, the prophet says, listen, if you will test me in this, if you will trust me in this, if you will tithe, if you will put him first, I will open up the floodgates of heaven, oh, and I will, re I will rebuke the devourer in your life. Who doesn't need that? Do you realize when you give, you are not giving to this church? Hebrews, all through the Bible, says God is receiving the tithe. Do you realize you're not even giving to him? You are returning back to him what is already his. And I'm just telling you, a person of compassion understands and sees the needs. And, and this church... All that this church is doing with the numbers of elementary schools that we have adopted and come alongside of. We put thousands upon thousands of dollars so that the world would see and a school would see and some teachers would see. There's something different about us. A little bit over a year ago, we adopted a church in Lima, Peru, and, and about almost 200 of you monthly support that whole effort. And because of your giving, Kids have, have water and, and clean water. They have, they have food. They have clothing. They get school clothes. They get education. You want to lift a generation out of poverty? You educate them. And you spiritually develop them. 
And you know what they're finding in Lima, Peru? You know what we're finding? When these kids are lifted out of poverty, it doesn't just lift the kids out of poverty. It lifts the whole family out of poverty. The whole family steps up because of what Fellowship of the Rockies is doing. And right now, we're a couple of mission trips away. We've got another mission trip going in April of, of completing an orphanage in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, to where we're going to house a bunch of, of, of children in, in Haiti. And I'm telling you, compassion is this. Compassion is life and is, is love and action. And, and tithing is a test of the heart. Are you going to put God first in your life? Because the Bible says that when we give, He receives it and He blesses it. 1 Corinthians 16.2 in the, in the New Testament said, On the first day of every week, each of you is to, put aside, uh, uh, is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there'll be no collecting when I come. The book of 1 John, and one day I'm going to preach verse by verse through, the first John, for, through 1 John. And it, it's, it's the picture, it, it's, it's a group of scripture written to a local church and lick, written to a local body of believers. And it's a way that you can read through just to make sure that you have a relationship with Christ. It's just not some religious thing. It's a convicting book, and here's what he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart off against him, how does God's love even abide in him? Compassion is more than just giving money. Compassion is more than just giving time. Compassion is willing to give money and time and and when you look at David's life, David just didn't send money. David just didn't write a check to Mephibosheth there in Lodabar. He gave resources, he gave money, and he, he brought him in, and he brought him into his home. And Compassion leads people to greet people out there in the foyer that when someone's new and they're awkward, you don't just talk to your same old friends, but you're willing to walk over to them and say, hey, my name is. Welcome to our church. And you put them at ease. And can I help you? Compassion is being willing to say hello. Compassion is opening up your home and, and life groups and, and meeting with people and praying with them and encouraging them. David, David invited Mephibosheth into his home. I'm telling you, Jesus said, by your love, the way that you love one another, the way that you love your world, they will know you're my disciple. Don't you think one of the reasons why the world has become so cynical about the church and Christians is they no longer really love each other. And they've made Christianity all about themselves. Their peace, their happiness, their likes, their dislikes. And they no longer want to be inconvenienced for a world. I hope you don't miss the significance of this story, but like Mephibosheth, we have all fallen into sin and we have been spiritually paralyzed for life. And we're often like Mephibosheth and we hide from God out of guilt and out of fear. But just like King David pursued Mephibosheth in Lodabar, a desolate place, I'm here to tell you King Jesus pursues you. And it doesn't matter if you think of yourself as scum of the earth or worthless or not significant. He thinks you're significant enough to go to a cross to leave heaven and die for you so that you can have forgiveness.